Uh, I wanted to start this the 1st of January, so I'm only six weeks behind, no problem. Uh, and so we're starting in 2 Samuel chapter 1 today, and so if you turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have one, there's a blue Bible in front of you, and you can turn to page 254, and we're going to be reading a lament that David lamented here in chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 17 and go to the end of the chapter. So let's stand together and read God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. And he said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Yoboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me has, was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. I recently listened to a leadership podcast and the guest that was being interviewed, his name was Ter- or is Terry Wardell, or Terry Wardle. And he talked in the podcast, <clears throat> as a leader, the importance of grieving your losses. And I want to paraphrase some of what he said and then use that as a launching pad as we think about 1 Samuel One quote, life, especially the life of a leader, is a series of ungrieved losses. Life is a series of ungrieved losses. So often life is moving so fast, you have little time to to grieve. And you rationalize, the the world is moving forward, so I've got to move forward. I don't have time to, to sit down and process. Or you don't really know how to grieve. And so you, you feel the need to grieve, but you don't, you're not really emotionally equipped to grieve, so you, you bury your losses, and then you limp forward in life. Wardle made this statement, every loss in life demands an appropriate season of grieving, whether you've lost your favorite person or your favorite pen. Every loss requires an appropriate amount of an appropriate season 
of grieving. Loss is meant to be grieved, and when we fail to grieve, those losses get internalized. And when we feel that pain come into our soul, we will find ways. Every soul will find a way to kill pain. And if we don't have a way to process it, that pain becomes internalized and we, we find a way to kill the pain through performance, addictions, anger, apathy. He goes on to say, whenever you see the fruit of dysfunction, you can be sure it comes from the root of wounding. Whenever you see this addiction, whenever you see this anger, whenever you see this behavior, this fruit, you can go back and trace it back and say, there's probably some wound here that never really got addressed. It never got grieved over. And if Wardle is correct that life is a series of ungrieved losses, then we better learn how to bring the pain of those losses out, out of our heart, out of our soul, and out into the light and the grace and the healing of God. And thankfully, we have the Bible to help us. And particularly, we have King David. King David, the writer of most of the Psalms, the writer of many of the laments. One commentator on David's life said this, David in distress walked together his whole life. How would you like to have that as your best friend? Me in distress. So you often think of King David and the king, he's in this position of power, but he's always accompanied from the very beginning, as we saw when we looked at 1 Samuel, he's, he's always accompanied by distress. Some people here think distress is their best friend. Just can never seem to get enough space away from distress before another one comes. One thing that helped David to move forward in life is he had the ability to grieve his losses. And we call that in biblical language, he had the ability to lament, which is the title of the sermon. A couple of definitions that might be helpful just thinking about this word that might seem foreign to you. Laments is, a lament is a formal expression of grief. A formal expression of grief. It can be written read, learned, and repeated. So you've formalized your grief. It's, it's written down. I can read it and reread it. We're rereading a lament by David here this morning. You can learn a lament and you can repeat it. Another definition, the intensity of emotion coupled with the discipline of mind to produce structured sorrow. I like that phrase. A lament is structured sorrow. I've had time to sit down. I've had time to process it. I've had time to structure it. I'm still in sorrow, but I'm sitting here thinking about it. I'm sitting here staring about it. I'm giving it some kind of structure. And so learning how to lament, learning how to structure our sorrow must be a very important aspect to a healthy life because the Bible is full of laments. There's one whole book called Lamentations. Now, perhaps you know there is a hymnal in the Bible. Here, right in the middle of the Bible, is 150 uh, uh, pages of a hymnal. And it's called the Book of Psalms. 150 songs, and, and these songs are, 
are put here in the middle of the Bible to basically say uh, the human condition is going to experience all kinds of emotions. And in the Psalms, you, you get the total range from you know, absolute joy to, to absolute, absolute distress. Perhaps you didn't know that 40% of the Psalms are laments. 40% of the hymnal is lament. So if you were to come to an Old Testament worship service and they were to sing five songs like we do here at Christ Community, two of the five songs every week would be laments. Songs that would carry your soul into this sorrowful place. One Christian writer said approximately 40% of the psalms are laments and approximately 0% of the top 150 songs sung by churches are laments. See, even in the church, we don't really have, in the modern church, we don't have the language of laments. Our, our real lives are full of losses, but we don't have any way to express that. And when David says in verse 18 here, I'm writing something down and it should be taught, that just doesn't compute to us. It should be taught. I mean, if you have a bad day, if you have a bad event, let's try to remember, not remember it. Let's try to bury it. Let's not bring it back up. Why would we write it down so we could sing it to ourselves at some later point? I'm trying to get rid of this pain. And of course, if you bury that pain thinking you're going to forget about it, it's a seed. And you may not see it right away, but that ungrieved loss is like a dark seed. It gets buried. And over time and in many different ways, it buries dysfunctional fruit. We could learn so much from the songs written by our brothers and sisters who were Christians and also slaves in America. You know, how did they keep moving forward under those oppressive conditions? They, they, you probably know this, they move forward by singing. That's, that's one of the marks of going to an African-American church is, is the singing this singing carried their souls forward, and much of their singing is laments. So they would come in and they would sing, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Or sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long way from home. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone, a long way from home. These, these are songs they would sing as they came to worship. That I feel like a motherless child. I feel disconnected to anything in my whole world. And I feel like I'm a long, long way from home. It, they gave space for those kinds of feelings. And David understood the importance of lament. So he lived this life of distress and he learned how to lament. And we can get help from him today. First of all, how did we even get to this particular place? How did we get to a lament in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel? At the end of 1 Samuel, so let's do a little background. At the end of 1 Samuel, uh, David had been running for his life for 10 years. He'd been hiding in caves. We talked about this several weeks ago. 10 years of on the run from Saul. 
Saul's always trying, jealous of David, trying to put him to death. And David spent his 10 years in the wilderness hiding with, in caves. And at the very end of the, the chapters in 1 Samuel, there's two simultaneous battles ta- happening. David is fighting one group of enemies from, of Israel, and Saul is fighting another group. And both of these battles happening in different geographic locations, but happening at the same time, and you sort of bounce back and forth of what's happening in these battles. And David and his fighting men win their battle, and Saul and his fighting men, they're fighting on Mount Gilboa, which we'll see here in a minute, they lose badly. Saul actually ends up wounded. He's afraid that he's going to be overtaken by the Philistines, so he kills himself. That's how the chapter of the book of 1 Samuel ends, ends on a depressing note. And it's worth noting, just to have this little connection to the New Testament, the first king of Israel is Saul. And he was supposed to protect the people protect God's people, yet in a supreme act of selfishness, he takes his own life. The last and true king of Israel is Jesus. And in a supreme act of selflessness, in order to protect his own people, he gives his life. So you couldn't have a bigger contrast from Saul, the first king, to Jesus, the the final king. And so 2 Samuel opens with David receiving a report about this loss. A messenger comes and tells David what happens. And here's his reaction. Look back with me in verse 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes. He tore them. And so did all the men who were with David. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. You might call this reaction spontaneous grief. You're unaware of what's happening and somebody knocks on your door and they give you the worst news possible. And just you have a spontaneous emotional reaction. You, you burst out into tears. Whatever it is for you, you, you can't control yourself at that moment. But sometime later, once this rush of emotions pours through your soul, there comes a a second kind of grief. It's called reflective grief. This is when you sit down and you have structured sorrow. You you consider the pain. You consider what what is the most painful part about this news that I've just received? Why, Why are you so deeply affected by it? What's the cost to you? you? You begin to formulate a response. You might think of it as like sitting in a dark room. If you sit in a room that's very bright and they turn the lights out, it all seems dark immediately. But if you stay in that darkness, after a while, your eyes just begin to adjust. And you're still in the dark. You're still feeling the pain. But you can begin to make an outline of some things that you couldn't see immediately. So David is, he's sitting in this dark room in verse 11 and 12. But as time goes by, he's had some time to sit in this darkness. He's still sitting in the pain. And he writes this song, verses 19 through 27, this lament. And it breaks into three different parts. 
and it's probably easiest to remember it this way, negation, commendation, separation. Negation. I just don't want to believe it happened. Everybody here who's been through pain is going to understand this process. I hear this, I just can't believe it. I'm I'm almost sort of rejecting it. Then commendation, I'm remembering with fondness these people that I've lost, and then the pain, the real pain, separation, negation. Your glory, O Lord, verse 19, is slain. The, The people of God, including Saul and Jonathan, David's best friend, they're slain. Then notice David, tell it not, tell it, don't say it out loud, especially don't say it in the Philistine cities. I don't want the news to go out. I don't want anybody to say it. I don't want anybody to celebrate it, especially the enemies. It's like somehow in David's mind at this point of pain, if, if, John, if Saul and Jonathan's death doesn't make the evening news, it's, not, it's like it's not real. Somebody loses a loved one, especially a child. You might leave their room just as it was for a long time. It's a way of like trying to cope to say, if I, if I don't change the room, it's like they, they could come back. It's so, something could be changed. I mean, you, you know it's not rational at that point, but there's a feeling like I'd, I just don't want the news to get out. But, but David, he knows, he knows that this news tra- has traveled to him. He knows it's traveled back to the Philistines. So it's an irrational thought. But when you're grieving, you're not bound by rational thoughts, I hope you know. Grieving isn't to say, I've got it all rationally figured out. No, no, that's not real grieving. You can have irrational thoughts at this part. It's part of the grieving process. And then notice the second thing he wishes for. He wishes for two impossible things, that the news somehow doesn't spread. And then verse 21, you mountain of Gilboa. This is where all the bodies are strewn across the mountain, including Jonathan and Saul. No dew. No rain. I want all the natural order to totally come to a stop and notice this pain. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced a loss and irrationally you want everything to stop and just take notice of your loss. It's like you want the whole natural world to stop and groan this particular loss. When I was 23, I lost my mother to cancer. And I was driving back to her home. And I was stopped at a stoplight in Winston-Salem, a busy intersection. And here I am, this massive loss, this biggest loss that Paul Phillips has ever really experienced, even to today. And I'm sitting at this four-way stoplight, waiting for the signal, and I just take a moment to notice the people that are stopped around me. Somebody singing to the radio, one person eating french fries, one person look like, looking like I'm frustrated that I'm stopped at this light, and I wanted to reach through my windshield and strangle every one of them. 
and say, don't you know what's happened? But see, life for them, it's, it's moving on. I have no doubt that somebody in their pain has stopped and watched me singing a song or eating french fries. But you see what happens when, when that pain comes to your soul, irrationally you just, or impossibly, you want everything to stop. And just being able to say, that's how I feel, is bringing it out of your soul and letting God address it in his graceful ways. So that's the first part of what we learn here from David in this particular song of grief. Secondly, he has commendation. This is where he looks and remembers fondly David or Jonathan and Saul. The, the bow of Jonathan never turned back. He's just remembering all the victories Jonathan had. The sword of Saul never returned empty. These, these two mighty warriors had gone out and won so many battles. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death. They, were, they weren't divided. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. All this commendation. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. His leadership brought you luxury. Now, what's, what's most surprising about these words coming from David? What in the world, David? Saul has been chasing you for 10 years. If I had heard this news, there'd be no commendation for Saul. It would just be celebration. I'm so glad that person's out of my life. I'm so glad that person is gone. But we learn something very critical about grieving and very important about David particularly and maybe something very important for you to remember. Why is David lamenting Saul's death and not celebrating? Let me give you a couple of suggested reasons First of all, when you lament, laments are like eulogies. They're not designed to be a complete biography. When you stand up at somebody's funeral or you're lamenting a loss, you're not meant to say, here's everything that could be said about this person. You're focused in on certain things. They're not intended to be balanced views of the person's life. And so David's reflecting back on some good in Saul that was lost. He's, he's choosing at this moment to remember good things about Saul. And he grieves those losses. And although Saul did try to hurt David, there was a time where Saul treated David like a son, brought him in, in, into his inner circle. They, they had the family meal together. David learned a lot under Saul's leadership. And perhaps David is grieving the loss of any possibility of that relationship being restored and maybe he's mourning what might have been, what, what once was but somehow went sour, and now I'm just grieving that, that it, it could have been different. I wish it would have been different. And again, so many here know what I'm talking about. You never had a great relationship with your father or mother. Maybe they treated you very poorly. Maybe so poorly you actually couldn't be around them very often. Yet when they die, you grieve. 
and you grieve over what might have been, what, what should have been, what, what could have been. And you, you've got to bring that pain out into the healing grace of the Lord. Now here's something very important to see about David and was super convicting to me and may be helpful to you. Saul was jealous of David. Saul chased David. Saul cheated David. Saul hated David. Yet through all this distress that David experiences at the hand of Saul, David wasn't emotionally destroyed by Saul. This huge burden David had to endure didn't reduce David to an angry, bitter person. It didn't come in and crush him and make him narrow and say, this was so painful. Now, all I have left because of this weight and this pain is anger. All I have left from this burden is is bitterness. And of course, you can justify the anger. You can justify the bitterness to say, look, you haven't been living in a cave for 10 years. You haven't been somebody who's running for your life. And you see how that could have compressed David down to, to one sort of singular type of person. But David didn't allow that to happen. Listen to how Eugene Peterson talks about this. Saul's hatred, instead of narrowing David and reducing him, in fact, provided the conditions in which David became large, expansive, and generous. Instead of reducing, it created a moment where David could break those bounds and become large and expansive and generous. David had to push against this thing for 10 years. This thing, this person never changed. It was like a stone that couldn't be moved. But that burden was placed there by God Almighty in order for David to grow. See, it wasn't placed there for David to change it. It was placed there for David to be changed by it. And it's possible that these heavy things that you have to press against are there to develop your own soul, not to change the situation or change the person. But see how frustrating it can be if you say, God, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, but this person isn't changing. This isn't happening. And then you get frustrated and you get narrow and you get angry and you become bitter at them and and God. And God might say, I'm not intending you to change anything. I'm intending for you to change. And David was going to be the king. And he was going to be a king after God's own heart. And so David needed, God needed to see that David had a generous, expansive, large view of God, not a narrow, bitter view of God. Imagine what kind of king that would be. Finally, the real heart of the pain comes in verse 25 through 27. This experience of separation from his best friend. This person who loved better than a wife, meaning he was more faithful than a wife. This is somebody you could count on closer than your closest friend. Notice that he changes to the first person. I am distressed. Your love for me was extraordinary. David's 
He's getting down to the center of the pain and his reflective grief. No doubt he's remembering the last time he talked with his best friend, Jonathan. Some of you remember back in, I think it was chapter 23. David is, he's in the darkest part of his cave. And who comes to him? Jonathan. Such a great moment. Jonathan finds David out, comes in and says, you're going to be the king. And when you're the king, I'm going to stand right next to you. And it's going to be glorious. And they shared this dream together. They may even made a covenant together to say, we're going to do this together. And now David's experienced this painful death of a dream. It's not going to happen this way. Just saying it out loud is painful. David's dream, what seemed to be good to him, what seemed to be God-honoring to him, it's not going to happen. And before David can move forward, before he can become the king, he has to deal with this distress. He has to sit down and stare at it. Live in it. Learn from it. And then he can move forward. I wish this important and heavy topic, oh, how I wish, that was this, this was just a topic for adults. That you don't have experience any pain until you get to be 18 or 21 or 25. That somehow you, you get isolated from grieving, and then at 21, somebody opens the door of grief to you, and you go, oh, I didn't know that was part of it. I wish it, oh, I wish it worked that way. But some people, some people here have knowledge at, at third grade, sixth grade. You've got to learn how to deal with pain. Some, something's died for me. Some, something's ended in death or something's ended in a divorce. Some kind of dream has died and it's not going to happen like I thought it should happen. And you, as a child, you have to carry the same weight, the same heaviness. And so I, I thought, how can I express this? Because a lot of this, I think if you're sitting here as a third grader or fifth grader, even middle school student, you just sort of zone out. When you look at your watch, when is Preacher Paul going to be done here? And so I thought, well, what, what's an illustration? What's, what's a visual thing that a a child might be able to, to, to take home to say that you too, you too, you're going to have to learn how to deal with grief and pain. And there's a great, great uh, movie. Some of you have seen it. It's called Inside Out, a little Pixar movie. It's really about the story of a middle school girl, I think, named Riley. And she has all these emotions in her head. And uh, joy and sadness are two of the main characters and without trying to tell you everything, uh, they run into uh, a guy who's really goofy but super lovable named Bing Bong. Bing Bong's the pink elephant. Bing Bong is the, the special stuffed animal, you know, that your child has that, that, that she talks to Bing Bong. She dreams with Bing Bong. She has a tea with Bing Bong. Everything's about Bing Bong. But what happens in this point of this movie is Riley's growing up. And all these memories of her childhood are beginning to fade, and they kind of get pushed over a cliff. 
And Bing Bong could see that all of the things that he wanted with Riley now are getting discarded, and he has to learn how to grieve. And so you'll notice that as in this clip, the dreams sort of get pushed over by this bulldozer, and he gets help not from joy, but from sadness. Let's take a look at this. can't be done with me. Hey, it's going to be okay. We can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. <gasps> hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster. Hey, bing bong, look at this. <laughs> Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station and we all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh. They were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! That sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. Yeah, it's sad. <laughs> I'm okay now. Station is this way. You know, sometimes Hollywood gets it just right. Sometimes you just have to sit down and look at all the things that you're going to lose or you lost. And before we move to the next train station, you got to just sit there and grieve your loss. I had so many plans for Riley and I, but they're not going to happen. And you can't insert joy at that moment. You can't insert a trip to Disneyland. You can't insert an amount of money. You can't earn, insert a praise song. You've got to insert sadness, laments. So you, somebody can hold your hand and say, I'm sorry. That must have been really difficult. And you get a chance to get what's inside out. And, of course, they compressed it. And then you can say, okay, now I can move forward. Let's pray together. Lord, there's <clears throat> so many ungrieved losses here just in this room. People who have experienced death and divorce... People have experienced dreams being dashed, things that they hope for getting pushed off into a, an abyss. And there's not going to be a way to put it back together. And because, Lord, the world seems to move so fast, we move in and, and many of us have these painful 
seeds that we buried, and now they're bearing dysfunctional fruit. Some of us have been compressed into an angry or bitter person. And I thank you for David giving us the space this morning to get it out. To sit in a dark room and just say, this is why I feel this way. To give us the freedom to stand up and, or sit down and, and reflect on our sorrow. Give it some structure. And truly allow your Holy Spirit to come in and just sit next to us. For as long as it takes until you help us move on. So I pray for healing across this congregation. Healing and help through sorrow and lament. It would cause us then to rise up. Praise your glorious name and walk home. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.